We'll be in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. We're going to read down to verse 19. Here's what it says. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, set on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at, for, at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they had heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for what it means. And Lord, let us never stop, or let us stop. Let us not overlook the meaning of what we celebrate here in this Christmas season. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to redeem us from the curse so that we could be adopted as sons and we could cry, Abba, Father. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your Son came and took on flesh so that we could have the righteous requirement fulfilled, not because of our works, but because of the perfect works of Him. And Lord, thank You that the manger is not where it ended, but the focus was on the cross to redeem and to atone for the sins of the people. And Lord, we thank You. That's the hope we have today. Lord, we thank you that you're ruling and reigning as we speak. And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truths of these verses. As you, the King, are coming into Jerusalem. And Lord, let us keep our eyes fixed on our hope that you will return one day as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we will ever be with you. Lord, we thank you for the incarnation. And we praise you today. And I pray that you would give us understanding of these verses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here we see the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. But we know that there are different uh, accounts of this event and the other gospel accounts. And they give us a little bit different details. They, some uh, will uh, express a focus on certain elements while others will give us greater detail on other things that are involved in this scene. So as we go through John's account of this gospel, account of this triumphal entry, we will at times bring in other uh, elements that are taught and spoken of in the other gospel accounts of this event. 
But what we see here is this is after the anointing of Mary upon Jesus. And as she broke the, the vial there and she poured out this perfume upon him. And he says that he uh, she is uh, preparing him for his burial. And now Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. It says on the next day, the large crowds who had come to the feast when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Let me just say this so we can get a kind of a context of what's going on in this scene, because so often that we um, we overlook the detail and sometimes we overlook the sheer magnitude of numbers in the Bible. And We don't know exactly how many people would have been at this Passover account, but we do have some historical records that tell us a couple decades after this event uh, by the historian Josephus. He writes that in the 60s, 60 AD, that at one of the Passovers, there was between two and three million people that would have been at a Passover event here. That's the historical record that Josephus says. So we don't know for sure, but let's say that maybe a safe estimate is there's a million to two million people that possibly could be here preparing for this Passover feast. That's not a small crowd. That's a big crowd. That is a great, enormous scene, because if you remember, the Passover was one of the three feasts that the males were required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. They had to make this pilgrimage and they had to make this journey three times a year. And the Passover was one of them. And this is a big event. This is a a, a big feast, a celebration among the Jewish people. If you remember last week, we talked about it. There was talk and there was concern. And the question had had arose among the people there. Will Jesus come to the Passover? There was a a warrant out for his arrest, if you will. And they didn't know if he was going to come. And if you remember how we left off, not only is he coming to the Passover, He is the Passover. He is the Passover lamb to which will be slain. He's the fulfillment of the Passover. This is the Passover that he will die. This is the time that he will give his life for the sheep. This is the time at 3 p.m. as the sacrifice would be made in accordance to how it was in the Old Testament when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. So this is a big event. And now Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. We have talked about his hour nearing and it is getting close. It is getting closer by the day. We are just days away from which his hour will come and he will lay his life down. But here it tells us that they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. The palm branches, the palm trees were very significant to the Jew. And we have mentioned it before that One of the other feasts that the Jewish men were required to attend would have been the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a a week-long feast to where they would come and they would build these tabernacles or tents, if you will, these booths, and they would live in them for one week. And this was to symbolize or remember their time when they dwelt in tents in the wilderness and God dwelt among them. This was a remembrance of that time as he tabernacled among them as they journeyed through the wilderness. We see that the palm branches were a a material that were used to make these uh, booths. We find that in Leviticus 23.40. 
We also find in Revelation chapter 7 that around the throne of heaven, we see palm branches there as a way of rejoicing because we are finally tabernacled with God. This is the final dwelling with Him, as it tells us in the book of Revelation. So maybe there's some significance there that some of these people, unbeknownst to them, are waving the palm branches in a way to declare that He is tabernacling us among them. Because if you remember in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and eskenosin. That's the Greek word. And that Greek word, dwelt, means tabernacled. He came and He tabernacled amongst His people. And there's some significance here possibly as He's coming in that He is tabernacling us. God is in the flesh. And for this short period of time, He's tabernacling them and dwelling with them while He's on this earth. But I think there's also some other meaning to the palm branches here. And I think that we have to look at what happened in the intertestamental period. If you remember in John chapter 10, when Jesus is there in verse 22, we talked about the feast of the dedication. As he's going to tell those people that are gathered there in the portico of Solomon, it was the feast of the dedication is what John chapter 10 verse 22 says. This is where he says that they don't believe because they're not his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. He knows them and they follow him. He gives eternal life to them. They'll never perish. Him and the Father are one. That's taking place in the Solomon, or the portico of Solomon in the temple. And it's done at the Feast of Dedication. And if you remember that the Feast of Dedication was a, a, a feast that celebrated what had happened in the intertestamental period. So between the time of the Old Testament ending and the writing of the New Testament here, there's this period of about 400 years. And in this period, some things had happened. And if you remember from when we talked about that in John 10, that the Syrian leader, Antiochus Epiphanes, had overtaken Jerusalem and had taken over the temple. And he went in and desecrated the temple. And he erected a statue of Zeus. And there on the altar, sacrificed a swine, which would have been unimaginable to the Jew. This is what's going on in this intertestamental period. The, the temple had been overtaken and sieged and they weren't allowed to worship in that manner. And then there became a, a revolt, if you will, which started with a priest there named Matthias because they wanted to bring the temple back to the way it was. And they led a guerrilla warfare against these oppressors. And we know that this Matthias' son, Judas Maccabees, was the one who spearheaded this re revolt. And in 164 B.C., they regained control of the temple and they rededicated the temple to God. That's why it's called the Feast of Dedication. They had retaken the temple from the Syrians. They had rededicated it to them. And that would have been what is known as the Feast of Dedication otherwise known as the Feast of Lights, or today in modern time we know it as Hanukkah. That is what that is celebrated for. But they wanted more. They didn't want just the temple to be restored, and they didn't want just the religious freedom uh, granted. They wanted total political and military 
uh, uh, relief and freedom from the oppression of the Syrians. So the fighting kept going and kept continuing on. And after Judas Maccabeus had died, his brother Simon Maccabeus had taken over the revolt. And then in 142 BC, they finally gain political and military victory from the oppressors. And this man, Simon Maccabeus, became a hero, became legendary had fame and notoriety because he delivered them from the oppression of the Syrians. They had military conquest through him. They had freedom from their oppressors. And what did they do? They celebrated this. They celebrated Simon Maccabeus. They had a party and a parade with music and waving of the palm branches. To the Jew, the sign and the symbol of a palm branch came quickly to be represented as one that represented freedom from the oppression of others. A military conquest. That's why they were waving these branches down at, in front of Simon Maccabeus because he led the revolt of the political oppression of the Syrians. We even see that this goes further that she's going to show you a slide up here, that the palm branch became also carried on after the time of Christ to represent a freedom from the oppression of the enemy, a military freedom. Because in the 60s, as the Jews were leading a revolt against the Romans, they got so brave, they got so brazen that they minted their own coins. And you see what one of them, would look like. That why would they put the palm branch on the coins as they were leading this revolt against the Romans? Because to them, that meant that they were going to have military and absolute freedom from the oppression of the Romans. But we know that revolt didn't work. 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And the stories go that the Romans after that conquer. They minted their own coins that had a picture of them destroying the palm branch. You see, to the Jewish people, not only would the palm branch mean that a festival and celebration of the Feast of Boots as God dwelt with them, but it would also be a sign of freedom from the oppression that they were under. And they were under the oppression of the Romans at this time. And we see that so many times through the scriptures that they believed that the Messiah would be one who came and had the kingdom here on the earth. And the Messiah would be the one who delivered them from the hands of the Romans. That's who they wanted. That was their expectation of the Messiah. And now this crowd goes out to meet Jesus. They see what he's done. They see the signs that he's done. Most recently, he's raised a man from the dead. And how many here are waving the palm branches out of worship? And how many are waving them because they think he is the one who will lead them out of the oppression from the Romans? Because, you see, they expected him to do that. Hosanna! which means save us. God save us. Save us now. 
Were they wanting to be saved from their sin and have salvation? Or were they wanting to be saved from the Romans? See, this could be looking back to what happened with Simon Maccabeus. They remembered his victory over the Syrians. And now they're wanting Jesus to deliver the same thing over the Romans. But his kingdom's not of this world. And what's interesting here is that as they're crying Hosanna now because they wanted deliverance from the Romans, when he's arrested and they know that that's no longer a possibility, what does their cries change to? Instead of Hosanna, it's now crucify. Because now he's not the one who's going to lead us out of the hands of the Romans. You see, what they thought he was going to be and what they thought he was going to deliver was not what was the case. And their praise went to blame and anger. That wouldn't happen to us, would it? When God doesn't meet our expectations, when he doesn't give us what we want, when we don't get what we think we should get, or we don't think that he fits in our criteria of what God should be, do we stop praising and start blaming? Hosanna, save us now. This goes back to Psalm 118. Talking about the Feast of Tabernacles really quickly, that every day, every morning of the Feast of Tabernacles, that they would sing a, a, a certain passages of Scripture called the Hallel. Every morning they would sing Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And that's where this Hosanna comes from. It's Psalm 118. So they were familiar with this. This would have been a song that they would have sung in the Feast of Tabernacles. But it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You can find that in Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. That's a great passage of Scripture. A few verses before it says that, the, that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. And then a few verses after this passage of Scripture in that same chapter talks about that a prophecy that he will be tied to the horns of the altar and sacrificed. Save us now from the Romans. Is that what they wanted? <coughs> Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What a scene this is. Jesus finding a young donkey set on it as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. This is to fulfill the prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What John doesn't tell us that other accounts do is that he sent his disciples, uh, a few of his disciples into the town. And they said, when you find uh, these, the, the, the donkey and the colt, you, you untie them, you bring them. If they ask you why, you tell them that the master needs use of them. It had never been ridden on, just like the tomb which he was buried had never been used. This is to fill the prophecy. This is to fulfill what was written. In Zechariah 9, 9. And why is that significant? Why is the donkey so significant? 
Well, because it shows and speaks to the humility to which he came. At this time, when a king or a conquering king would come into to a place, he would come on a steed, he would come in great power, he would come in great pomp and circumstance as he had great authority. Riding on a steed, riding on this horse would represent that it meant power or war or conquer. But the king of kings comes in riding on a donkey. Humility, he came. We find that in the incarnation, don't we? Did he come down from heaven with lights, spotlights shining upon him as the whole world sees the eternal God coming to this earth as the music of hallelujah plays as he's coming down? Is this the scene that we find? No. You find there's no room in the inn. You find that he's born of humble means. Because the Son of Man coming to earth speaks of His humility. There's two parts that we speak of when we think about Christ coming to earth. The first part is the humiliation and the second part is the exaltation. This speaks to Him coming in peace. This speaks to Him coming in all humility. And we find that in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, it says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is humility for the eternal God to take on flesh and enter His creation. To be born in a manger, to be born of humble means, to ride in in this triumphal procession on a donkey. This speaks to the humility of the incarnation. This speaks to the humility of our Savior. As He rides in to Jerusalem, can I tell you something? When he comes back, he's not coming back on a donkey. He came in peace. He came in humility into Jerusalem. But the Bible tells us in Revelation 19, 16, a different story. When he comes back, he's going to come back as a conquering king. And look at the imagery that it tells us in the book of Revelation. Verse 11. And I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it called, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Let me say this. Taylor likes, there's a verse that says that John was told something or shown something that no one knows. And you'd like to know what that is. I would like to know that as well. 
but we won't. I'd like to know what this is. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in the linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it it may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our King. He come. Humility was shown here. He come in all humility in the incarnation to humble himself, to lower himself, to take on the form of a servant, to take on the form of a man. He came in a humble way. He rode into Jerusalem on a humble way. He died in a way that's so humiliating. But he did that for his people. He did that so that we would have hope. And when he comes again, he will come as a conquering king. That's the glory of our God. It says this in verse 16. Then the disciples did not, these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. This is an editor's note. John is saying that the disciples, including himself, didn't really understand what was going on here. And it wasn't until he was glorified, until he was resurrected, that they began to understand these things that were written in Zechariah and how Christ was fulfilling it. We see other examples of that. Remember in Luke 24 that after his resurrection, he opens their eyes so that they begin to see how the law and the, the prophets and the Psalms were written about him. They finally truly understand the meaning of this after his resurrection. And let me say this. I told you there were some things that this account doesn't mention that some of the other accounts do. That as he's riding into Jerusalem, they begin to throw coats on the ground. This is a red carpet, if you will. And we find that this was a, 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 an act that was done to express uh, royalty. We even find it in the Old Testament um, that, that there was a king named Jehu who was anointed and going to be the king after Ahaz. And, and they began to do the same thing, lay their coats and their garments in front of him as a sign that he is the coming king of that time. So this is a, to show that he is kingly. This is to roll out the red carpet, if you will. Why would they do this? Maybe they think he's going to save them from the Romans. We see that because they're going to crucify him later. I'm sure there were some there that really believed and truly understood Hosanna, save us in salvation. But the majority there was going to cry crucify later. And what we don't find in this account that I think is important to take note of, do you remember that in one of the accounts, it tells us that the Pharisees are trying to get the praise and all the pomp and circumstance and all the hosannas to stop? And what is told to them? Well, if they stop praising me, 
then the rocks will cry out to me. You know, rocks get a bad name, don't they? You ever heard this expression? That fella is as dumb as a box of rocks. Surely no one said that here. But you've heard that. Rocks get a bad name. Do you know how smart rocks are? They're smart enough to know who their creator is. They know who their creator is. They know who the king of all kings is. And they cry out. The stars cry out. The angels cry out. All creation cries out, knowing who their creator is, but the ones whom he's redeemed are so often the ones who praise him the least. Maybe we need to be as dumb as a box of rocks sometimes and let our praise never stop going to the creator of all things. Verse 17, it says, So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. They can't get rid of this Lazarus guy. His testimony is hindering the Pharisees' agenda. They want the word of Christ to be squashed. They want it to be done away with. They don't want anybody following Christ. They don't want their power to just be taken out of their hands. And if you remember earlier in this chapter, in verse 10, it says, but the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And I guess they think that maybe the testimony of the one who is raised from the dead would not be quite as impressive if we killed him. Then that testimony would cease. And then we could come around his grave and look, now let's see him do it again. They hate Jesus. They hate Lazarus because Lazarus is testifying. And the people who were there that believed that day are also testifying of the things that they saw. And there's great excitement here. There are people that are coming to follow Christ. And this upsets the Pharisees. They see this. Because look at their response in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, let me just say this. You see the word world there, don't you? In the gospel, according to John, that word is cosmos. That word has over 10 different meanings in John alone. When we come to John 3.16, so many people demand that that mean every single person in the world. I believe that is referring to the Jew and the Gentile. That is the world, the nations. Not every single person. Because we know not every single person believes. Those who have been appointed to eternal life will believe, as Acts 13, 48 says. And we have another example that the word world does not mean every single person. There's some 
that we can talk about. The same author of the gospel, according to John, is the same author of 1 John. And what does he say? Don't love the world? Well, that's going to be a tough because we're called to love the world and to be compassionate and kind. We're to show the love of Christ to everyone we come in contact with. So if we're not to love the world, how can we show the love of Christ? That's not talking about every single person. It's not the context there. And here the Pharisees say, look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's stop and let's debunk this, that this does not mean every person in the world in one second. You ready? Are the Pharisees believing in him? Okay. Then it's not every single person in the world. What this means in this context is a large group. They're seeing a large group of people believing in him. Not every single person. Look, the whole world, everybody, seems like everybody's following him. Now, we do know that there's going to be some that look like they're following him that are truly not following him. There's going to be some that are crying Hosanna that will then call crucify. A profession of faith never saved anyone. We've said this, but a possession of faith does. And listen, we'll talk about that on Wednesday. Let me put a plug in for Wednesday if I can really briefly. It's one of the most terrifying verses that will ever be in in the whole Bible on Wednesday. If you can make it to Wednesday service, come. If you have anybody that you know uh, that is not a Christian, you know anybody, just anybody you know, come Wednesday, because it is going to be a terrifying verse, a couple verses that we're going to go over, which will be not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But how do we know? We'll talk about that. But they see these people starting to follow him, and they absolutely hate it. They absolutely despise it because they hate him. And that's, verse 19 is where John's account kind of ends there as far as his his triumphal entry. But I want to just make a real quick brief note before we end. The other gospel accounts will tell us where Jesus goes after he comes in. And one of his first stops is the temple. He's going to go and he's going to clean out the temple again. Do you remember when we talked about that in John chapter 2 when he cleansed the temple? Remember the question that was asked, how long after he cleansed the temple and he knocked over the tables until the tables were set back up and they were doing the exact same thing? Well, here we are, three years later, and the tables are going to have to be cleansed again. But he goes to the temple, and I think this is so amazing. I think this is so interesting. That in the book of Ezekiel, we have this event that's recorded by Ezekiel. And it tells us that the glory of God is going to depart from the temple. The temple will be destroyed. The Babylonians will destroy the temple in 586 B.C. and the, the Jews will be exiled by the Babylonians. But Ezekiel tells us that the glory of God will exit the, the temple east. And then in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, it says the glory of God stands over the mountain to the east. 
And the mountain to the east of the temple would have been the mountain of olives. And the glory of God departed. But where did Jesus come from before he rode into Jerusalem? He was at Bethany, which was on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, he then comes into Jerusalem. And he goes to the temple. So Ezekiel sees the glory of God leaving the temple, going east to the Mount of Olives and leaving. And now Jesus comes from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And he goes to the temple because the glory of God has come. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, verse 3, speaking of the Son, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That's the Son. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And now where the glory of God departed, the glory of God is coming. He's the King of glory. The temple is where the sacrifices would be made and the greatest sacrifice that would ever be made is in the middle of the temple. I just think that's a beautiful note that we have to address. The glory of God has returned. The glory of God is in the temple again because the radiance and the exact representation of His nature in the glory of God in the form of the Son is here. Jesus has been ministering for three years, but it's time to enter Jerusalem. And this triumphal entry has arrived. His hour is getting closer. It's drawing near, but his face is set towards the cross. And in the incarnation, the eternal God humbled himself, took on flesh, and entered into his creation. His birth was of humble means. He was born in a manger. And we see this humility again in this story as the eternal Logos rides in on a lowly donkey. And he will die on Passover in just a few short days. But what we see as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, we must go back. We have to go back. We have to go back to the Old Testament. I was in the store the other day and I walked by and I heard this conversation and it was a young man talking to an older couple and he began to talk about the old, I could hear him, they were talking about the Bible and he was talking about the Old Testament and he's like, that's tough and I just don't get it and I was late for getting to where I needed to be or I could have been there for two hours, three hours. But what he didn't know is that there's beauty in the Old Testament. It's pointing to Christ. There, there are types and there are shadows and the fulfillment of that is in Christ. Where do we find him? We find him in the Old Testament. He himself tells us that. But we have to go back. What is the importance of him coming these many days before he's going to die? 
Why didn't he just come on the day that he was to die? Because he has to fulfill what takes place to the Passover lamb in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Passover lamb was not just taken and just slain. But the Passover lamb was set out and for a set number of days, he was examined. They had to examine the lamb to make sure that the lamb was without blemish. To make sure the lamb was worthy to be slain. And then, and only then, after the inspection of those days, could the lamb be slain. I told you, is he coming to the Passover lamb? Or is he coming to the Passover? Yes, he is. He is the Passover lamb. And as Jesus begins to come into Jerusalem, the inspection begins. He will be inspected for these number of days. The Passover lamb will be checked out. He will be inspected. Is he without blemish? Is he worthy to lay his life down for the sheep as the Passover lamb? As Jesus comes in, the inspection begins. That's why he's coming. The king is coming. And the inspection begins. And we find out that later on, the results of that inspection will be made known. And they will be made known by Pilate. As this Passover lamb stands in front of Pilate, And these words are spoken. I find no guilt in him. Let me translate that. He came. The Passover lamb was inspected. And he passed with flying colors. He is without spot. He is without blemish. And he's worthy to be slain. That's why he's riding in these days ahead. He's being inspected and will be found worthy. And they cry, save us now. Some would have cried that in a true, sincere way. And some were crying it from saving from the Romans. They wanted to be saved from the Romans. But that wasn't his mission. That wasn't his mission. His mission was to save the elect. as he would die for them in just a few short days. And his mission was executed flawlessly. The cross was perfect. The cross was personal. And everyone that he died to save will be saved. And now we as his people know that call, save us. Save us. Save us now. And I'm thankful that he has. I've mentioned it to you already, but I think this would be the best way to end. He came in by humble means in his birth. He came in to Jerusalem in a humble way on a donkey. But the next time he comes, he's coming in as the conquering king of all. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these verses. Lord, we thank you that you came and did what we could not do. Lord, as we think about this entry into Jerusalem, Lord, you know what is awaiting you in the upcoming days. But Lord says, but for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross for us, for those who believe. Lord, we thank you for the story. We thank you that you came. We thank you that you gave your life for us because we have no hope. You are our hope. You are the king who came of humble ways and by humble means. But God, let us be strengthened and comforted in our souls today that we serve the king of all kings. As you right now are reigning and ruling on your throne, and you will reign forever. Lord, you came here for us. And we give you glory for that. We give you praise for that. And Lord, we thank you that we can cry Hosanna because you have saved us and you continue to save us as we walk in this world. We give you the praise and the glory and we pray that today as we go about this Christmas season, we would remember you in the incarnation because without it, we have no hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.